Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Nancy and I are continuing with an article that is titled Neurological Examination of Horses by Caroline Hahn. In part one of this, which if you haven't listened to, it is available. We released it last week. We discussed um, different neurological tests that would be carried out and we focused on history taking. Um, we mentioned um, physically, like what you can do, essentially hand movements or equipment that might be needed. And we talked about the head, neck, trunk and the perineum as well. So now this week, we're going to look at gait and posture, and we're going to talk about recumbent animals. So that's our horses that can't get up and our foals. And we're also going to look at autonomous zones too. So starting with gait and posture, I think this is something a lot of people um, in the equine industry are really adept at noticing and taking account of, because especially when it comes to horse sales, you're constantly looking at confirmation of the horse. You know, anytime you're thinking about buying a horse, you're looking at their confirmation, how they stand, how they move. You know, a lot of this sport is watching the horse move, you know, making sure we can get the horse to bend and flex and do these different um, exercises based on what we actually want to use them for whether they're a working horse or they're going to be an athlete or they're going to just be a riding pony or a pet so it's something I think everyone can definitely pick up on there are a couple of things that we start to see when a horse is suffering from some kind of spinal deficit or neurological deficit So if they can't feel those um, feet properly, they're going to move differently. Or if they can't feel parts of their limb or back or um, hindquarters. So this is the part I find really interesting and the tests that are linked in with it. Um, Is this something, Nancy, that you'd seen carried out before? Oh, yes. Yep. Um, We had a filly on the track and she was a two-year-old. And I noticed when I was hot walking her that um, her gait had changed, especially in her front legs. And she had more of a swinging. So um, she would go swing to the outside and almost step on my foot. So Mm -hmm. um, we sent her to the university for a neurological exams and testing. And um, I really what that was my first time really seeing a thorough neurological exam. And um, this whole section, I think the neatest part of it is when it says that the basis of gait generation in quadrupeds is the central pattern generator. And that's the biological neural circuits that drive rhythmic and stereotyped motor behaviors even in the absence of input from higher brain areas. And this has the advantage to the horse 
that a normal gait can be generated even when there's significant lesions in the brain, the brain stem, or the spinal cord, but the it's kind of um, keeps us from being able to disclose the abnormalities. So when you get a horse that is really starting to show ataxia, you know that lesion is in a bad place. So as in EPM, most horses are exposed to it, but not a lot of them ever come down with that disease diagnosis. And it all is the location of where that lesion is. I was wondering if it has something to do with the level of that parasite that they're exposed to. And I think it does. I think it has a little bit of both where that parasite ends up taking up housing in the spinal cord and to what degree. Mm -hmm. And I think um, when it comes to actually assessing this in horses as well, there are some interesting tests we can do, but it is different. I mean, we have to constantly take into account the size of the horse and the impact that's going to have on what we can do. So I don't know like if most people have ever been to the doctor and they test that reflex in your knee where they tap and your leg just yeah. kicks of its own accord. Um, we're not able to do that in a horse. It's very difficult to try and replicate because they're so heavy and to try and support that limb as a dead weight and get it to behave in that way is really difficult. So typically we're looking at, um, we're not looking at those involuntary reflexes. Um, we're looking at movement reflexes. So where we can kind of position them and see if they change. And one of these tests that I always find interesting, um, I just find it interesting because some horses will carry out this test as if they have a deficit when they don't. So one of them is where you can cross their legs. So just picking up a front foot and crossing it over the other front foot and see if they replace it. But these so-called push button ponies, you know, that just do whatever they're told. And the minute you touch their leg, they lift it for you. Sometimes they'll leave it there because they think you're asking them to do that, which I just think is the sweetest thing. Like you'll cross their leg and they're like, okay, this is just how I'm going to have to stand now. Yeah, I, I thought that was one of the highlights of this section of this paper in that placing the limb in an unusual uh, stance and then them not replacing it doesn't necessarily mean they're neurological. And I thought mm -hmm. that that was interesting because back in the 90s, that was one of the things we did was we crossed the feet. And if they replaced it or uncrossed, you thought you were good to go. There was nothing. Yeah. But I will add that that filly didn't was not neurological. Um, they put her through nuclear scintigraphy, which uh, is a radioactive format so I could not be there and everyone around the horse wears these lead suits and all that and she ended up having a microscopic bone chip in her knee and that leg and that's why she was swinging that that leg out so I just wanted to make sure everyone knew that mare was not neurologic but we were assuming she was 
And nuclear scintigraphy is a really cool like imaging technique. Um, we might cover that actually again in a future episode. But yeah, to find out if it's structural or if it's neurological. Um, we'd mentioned before the lifting of the head as one of the head and neck tests. But doing that while the horse walks is a good way to see if you're changing their vision has a knock-on effect. One of the other tests that I really liked is getting them to step up and down off of something really small. Um, so that can even just be like the edge of if you've got like a curb in front of the barn or the stable, getting them to walk up and down on something. If they're struggling to place their feet, they're like trying to think really hard to send the signals to move their legs. And they might be under control when they're walking because, you know, this could be progressive as it's come on and they've kind of gotten used to compensating and figuring out how to tell their feet where to place. But once you ask them to do something novel, that's when you kind of put them under more pressure and we start to see instability or they'll be knocking their feet as they try and lift it up. You know, they might naturally properly perceive how high they need to lift their foot. Um, and then this is all graded, actually, I should mention. So we can grade how ataxic they are, so how unstable they are in their walk. And we grade it one through four as subtle, mild, moderate, or severe. Um, if it is then found to be ataxic, we need to try and determine where that's coming from. So to isolate it to what part is it from the main spinal cord or is it the peripheral nervous system yeah that's a good point kate and then also the paresis um which is just a a weakness kind of in the limb um and maybe uh, you see a reduction in their flexibility and their motor function. That is also can be considered um, maybe something neurological. Um, in her instance at Philly, it was the fact that she was it probably her flexibility in that knee was making her swing that leg. So it had nothing to do spinal cord. But I thought it was interesting that the proprioceptive deficits um, dealt with the spinal cord and they classified that from head to tail and then cerebellar and then vestibular and vestibular would would be inner ear it would be balance so but most vet visits with neurological conditions show in a spinal deficit so um, I thought that was interesting because the other ones you're always hope is just something vestibular within mm -hmm. the ear that's easy to take care of and investigate but a lot of times it is along the spinal cord and that's why we mentioned in part one how important that history is mm -hmm. because if the horse has a history of sudden like head shaking that can be a sign that it's ear related and your ears obviously the pressure in your inner ears what allows your brain to I guess place yourself in time and space as I see it <laughs> because yeah um, if you lose that pressure if anyone's ever had like an inner ear problem or like a really bad ear infection you can actually just feel like your body is somersaulting and you're just sitting perfectly still so that pressurization is so um 
sensitive. And if there is a flare up, that'll really throw them off. Yeah. And then Kate, the other thing I thought we could talk about was that uh, figure eight within this paper, they've got a wonderful illustration of the all the cervical and uh, vertebrae involved. So um, did you remember that or do you have that up on your computer? Um, I'm just scanning through for that now. Do you have it there? Yeah, um, I'll, I just wanted to say like, uh, C1 to C6 can affect all limbs, pelvic limbs generally worse than thoracic limbs. And I just thought the numbering along the spinal cord and the area it affects is so useful for those that are trying to relay information to your veterinarian. Yeah, I do have that. I, I had this in front of me, but I was actually picturing a different image, which is probably from a different paper that we've done. <laughs> so in my head, I was like, I'm scrolling for a skeletal image. Um, yeah, those that cervical vertebrae are the ones in the horse's neck. So mm -hmm. even when you think about humans and you hear about paralysis um, or semi-paralysis, you will often hear about neck injuries because high neck injuries are the ones that are going to cause um, the most, I guess, paralysis in the body, the higher up it is in that spinal cord where it's occurring before the limbs. But um, what was it wobblers that we mentioned last week? This is one where we can see that occur because that happens up high in the cervical vertebrae where in old horses, it can occur as part of arthritic changes to that vertebrae. And in young horses, it's where they grow really quick and that vertebrae doesn't actually form properly. Um, and they get pinching of the spinal cord in either scenario. And wobblers is the uh, informal term for it. Just now it's gone from my head. What the proper... Do you remember what it is, Nancy? What you on I did have a wobbler on the racetrack. I even galloped him and he would start out strong. And then um, by the end of his gallop, I mean, his back end would just be swinging. And that was our first indicator. Something wasn't right. And um, he did win races, but it was very progressive um, somewhat quickly. I think within a couple years, um, the a university took him um, and they kept him there to be able to follow him and do testing and to learn more about Wobbler syndrome. And the actual full name for it, I would have been kicking myself if I yeah. didn't remember <laughs> this for the whole podcast, but it's uh, CVM. So it's cervical yeah. vertebral malformation. Yeah. Um, but that's a really interesting one because it can, you can just see it there around two years of age or so it can progressively, um, it, it almost looks like acute symptoms. So like it's suddenly come on, but it is a, essentially a chronic disease because it's occurring as they're growing over time. And you know, as I, when I first started galloping him, I took him on trail rides, very easy to control and everything. We got him to the racetrack, and as it progressed, he became very, very strong to gallop. 
and we thought he was just getting fit. And then um, the final phase was when you would pull him up. I mean, you literally thought he was going to fall over. The back end was so wobbly. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, he, he made it to a certain point. But um, I don't know research-wise if they're any further along than what they were in the early 2000 era. So we'll have mm-hmm. to check into that, Kate, because he certainly was a, a good athlete and um, he had a lot of potential, but he must have, maybe it was during um, formation or maybe he had an injury. Um, we don't know, you know, but mm-hmm. anyway, um, that definitely devastating because it, it is progressive. Yeah. Um, some of the examinations that you can carry out then when we're looking at the gait of a horse is turning them in circles, which we briefly mentioned in part one of the this episode. That's one, again, that you have to be really careful doing. All of these you have to be super careful because if you have an ataxic horse or a horse essentially that's wobbly, you are at very high risk of getting injured and you might think that you can move out of the way quick enough, but I can't stress enough how quickly they can fall over in these cases. And it's unpredictable in what direction because they they have lack of control of it. So when you're circling ataxic horses, you have to be so careful. You want to make sure that you are circling them so that you're not kind of on the outside, both how do I explain this properly? Both uh, people involved in carrying out the exam should be on the same side of the horse. So that's really important. So when we're doing circling or we're doing our tail pulling, you don't ever want one person like observing from the opposite side because the horse could fall to either side and you want to both be able to move in the same direction or try and guide the horse away from you if possible. So your safety is really important when you're doing this. When it comes to the tail pulling technique as well, I wouldn't actually recommend that anyone carries that out. I don't think it's necessary unless a veterinary professional is doing it as part of this full examination. What you could do as an owner is check tail tone. So that's just gently trying to lift the horse's tail and you'll see very quickly if that tail is limp or if there's a bit of resistance on it. Um, But I wouldn't, like as an owner, just walk the horse and have someone pull the tail. I think it's too risky and you're at a high risk of being kicked as well if you carry out that exam. Yeah. And then also um, when you do first uh, start your gait or posture analysis, make sure the horse is standing square because so many times um, they they're unable to stand square. So right away that gives you information and mm-hmm. you'll kind of know uh, what you're dealing with for safety. And on a hard flat surface, yep. when you're standing them, you want to make sure that um, you're kind of assessing them on a level ground at all times when you're doing this. Another one is moving them back and forward. So when you start to move them backwards, you can see that they become progressively more ataxic. So they'll really struggle to get their brain to tell their legs which leg to pick up or try and move as they walk backwards. 
so that will stress it as well all the point of all these exams is to kind of stress the syndrome a little bit further so we can try and identify and diagnose what's actually going on um so we had the walking in circles the tail pulling walking forwards and backwards over a little step um lifting the head when you walk and I think was that all of them Nancy yeah there was another one that they had me do at the university and it was uh they had a walkway where uh, part of it was like gray rubber mats and then the next section was black rubber mats and they would see if the horse would notice the change in texture and color of the matting and I tell you what this filly that I had which was non-neurological she put her head down low to investigate before she stepped on that black mat. And I'll never forget that, that, you know, how often do you, uh, you're out riding your horse and then all of a sudden the, um, the ground changes, either it's a different color or um, Mm -hmm. for my horses, one time we were on grass and then all of a sudden there were paved pavement bricks that we had to cross. And every single time they lower their head to check out what are they stepping on to? And so yeah. I think that, um, and I think they called it um, the way the horse interacts with its environment is important too. So the changes in the walking surface can make a difference as well. And what happens the minute that surface changes? Yeah. And depending as well, what's causing the um ataxia or if it is a lameness the surface will have an impact on that too because where you've got horses that are a little bit laminitic obviously a softer surface or a sand surface supports them so where they're studying them sands it's going to impact the sole of the hoof and give them that little bit extra support and take a bit of pressure off it so it is really important that we are using a solid flat surface it's not always possible I mean, I've been out to do lameness, like been with the vet doing lameness workups where the driveway um, to the house is gravel and then it's either field or sand arena. But in those cases, you know, sand arena is perfectly fine because we've ruled out through history any of the other potential causes. Yeah, I thought too, um, the next vertebrae was C7 to T2. And that can involve all four limbs, but all four limbs could move independently of each other. So instead of having your right forelimb forward and your hind left being forward, they'll actually pace where the right side both will come forward when, you know, normally a thoroughbred doesn't pace. So um, that is C7 to T2, and usually it does affect those thoracic limbs um, more, like dragging toes and muscle atrophy. And uh, I just thought the whole spinal column in assessing the different numbered vertebrae was interesting and how it pointed you to a different area. I find um, spinal injury really fascinating because 
there has been incredible advances with it. And I know like in the last week, it's been in the news a lot about what potential advances might be coming from different tech companies. But I know there was um, a study that was carried out in, my gosh, I was still in college. I couldn't even begin to guess. I, I would say it was maybe 2010. Um. But in the study, they took Dachshunds, so they're the little sausage dogs, and they're really prone to spinal injury because their backs are so long, um, which actually might correlate in our horses that have longer backs too. Yeah. But their their spines are can be a little bit like a roller coaster. And if they jump down off a couch or jump down off something that's high, they can injure themselves. So they were a great example to work with. And they had a number of Dachshunds that had um, paralysis of the hind legs because of injuries they'd sustained. And they took cells from the dog's nose, um, olfactory cells, and they used them like stem cells and put them into the spine. And some of the dogs regained movement, um, which was just incredible. Like abs- Now they're not, back running again because the problem you also have is as Nancy mentioned the atrophy of the muscles so anytime there is damage to the spine even if it is um like semi-permanent or like it's the horse will recover from it where they're not using their limbs properly we can over a period of time certainly we're going to see muscle wastage and then they're going to struggle to get correct movements again. That's why physio and rehab is so important in building these horses back up. Yeah. And I bet water exercises are important for that. Did you see? Oh, yeah. Where you yeah. can take some weight yeah. off. Yeah. And let them build the muscle through resistance rather than concussion on mm-hmm. the ground. But um, then the next vertebrae were T3 to L3. And that was your pelvic limb ataxia and paresis. So that's your weakness in the back end and your front limbs or your thoracic limbs are completely normal. And then um, L4 to L5 or no L4 to S3 were um, pelvic limbs. And that was when you're dragging toes and that's your cauda inguina signs with urinary and fecal incontinence. And that is the area that that equine herpes virus seems Mm -hmm. to attack in the neurologic form. And that's what I really wanted to get out by pointing these out is that that EHV1, if it it turns into that neurological form, you're not only going to see head asymmetry like head pressing, you're also going to see the um, cauda aguina signs with that. And that's L4 to S3. And then your sacral um, segments and cauda aguina, um, you might have no limb signs, but you just have poor tail tone and anal tone. And then also that incontinence is also noted. So make that would be key information to be able to pass on to your attending veterinarian. And to visualize it in yourself or in your horse. Um, when we talk about C, C1 or C2 or C3, we're talking about the cervical vertebrae. So that's the vertebrae in the neck. So it goes from the base of the skull down to the shoulder blades. 
and where those shoulder blades begin, we're going into our thoracic. So, well, just before we're, they would begin in us, we start in our thoracic vertebrae and that's the T ones we mentioned. And then they're going to run to roughly the base of your ribs. And then your lumbar vertebrae will run down to your hips. And then from that middle point of your hips, that's actually your sacroiliac joint, but where your hips essentially join your legs. Um, and in the horse, you can really kind of visualize that a bit better where that point of hip is. Then we start to move into our sacral um, vertebrae and they run down into the tail in the horse. So as Nancy was saying, where you move along, like the further you move back, then that's obviously where we start to see just hind legs affected, but also that incontinence. So those equine herpes virus sources take a huge amount of nursing care in a hospital setting because they need to have fecal evacuations. They need to have urinary catheters placed. And these horses are sometimes then hoisted. So they'll be in a sling so they don't injure themselves. And then we're going to have to actually feed them if they're capable of eating. If not, we're going to have to stomach tube them. They're going to have to be on drips. It's a really nasty disease once it becomes neurological and it is preventable through vaccination protocols. So um, definitely one where, you know, if your horse isn't up to date on those vaccines, have a second look and see, can you get that booked yeah. in and organized? And, you know, Kate, that was a good lead in into the recumbent animal, because if you have a, a horse that can't get up, a lot of times a sling will help. It'll help with pressure sores. It'll help with nerve um, degeneration from the huge amount of weight. Mm -hmm. You know, they're such large animals, they can't be down for a days and days at a time without having some form of damage or nerve paralysis. So the slings, uh, there was a horse at a barn where I boarded once that was down in the, the bleeding bed sores. And eventually they did get a sling. And I will say that sling really did help that horse recover while the vet could give anti-inflammatories. And I mean, you know, really treat that horse. And I believe their end diagnosis was EPM on that horse. But for a long time, they did not know what they were dealing with. And um, she was never perfect behind again. I mean, she had her weaknesses, but, um, you know, she did make it through with the use of a sling and good veterinary care. Mm -hmm. And those slings as well um, have to be really well padded because they alleviate like massive risk of pressure sores from a horse being down, but they can cause rubbing sores as well. Yeah. So it's just another consideration. But as Nancy said, like the weight of these animals for them to be down on one side for a period of time, they'll actually start to damage the lower lung, the one that's closest to the ground because of the weight and pressure that's on it. And that's something that we're careful about um, when we're doing anesthetics and surgery in horses, because that lower lung will not perfuse as correctly or as, as efficiently as the upper lung is. And we can start to get damaged that way too. Like they're just... They're incredible like animals because they're so big and so heavy 
and should be so robust, <laughs> but they're such sensitive souls as well. Like they're so delicate. And I think that's what's just truly fascinating I, I, um, to me about horses. Well, they're so magnificent until something goes wrong. Yeah. And then it's so sad and you just have to get in there. And it is a big puzzle, like we said last week. But Kate, have you had any experience veterinary wise with the autonomous zones um, in dogs? Because they mention that um, a horse is different than dogs in this case and that it can be very variable from uh, case to case even among the horses so have you had any experience with that um in the autonomous zones is that for the sensory branches in yeah. the legs i'm trying yeah. to wake my brain up yeah. it is, it's, it's where they do a pinch test where you hold oh yeah old and then um, you you keep it there with constant pressure. Then all of a sudden you exert strong pressure and see the reaction. And um, I wondered, um, you try to elicit a pain response. And they were just mentioning that, that it's a little bit different uh, in horses than in dogs. And I thought, you've got so much dog experience, too. <laughs> you know, have you ever had that? It's funny because, like, I think there's there's tests that we do all the time. And, like, when you first said autonomous, I was like, oh, trying to remember. But then when you said pinch test, I was like, we would do that so regularly. And um, that's a really simple one we would do to check for, um, like, often, actually, we would see cats. Well, maybe this is just my experience. But you would see dogs, if they had a leg injury, we'd pinch between their toes to see if they could feel it. Sometimes we would have to exert more pressure, like you said, and we might do that using an artery forceps to give a little pinch between the toes. Um, with cats, they tend to throw, um, not tend to, certain breeds are more predisposed to throwing embolisms, like blood clots, and that will cause a paralysis in one or both back legs. It depends on where the blood clot occurs. But again, we would do that really routinely. So pinching between the toes. And um, we do proprioception tests in them as well. So when they're standing on the table, we turn their feet upside down. So their paw is facing up. We get them to put their weight on it and just watch to see if they turn back or how quickly they're going to correct that back the way again. And then some you see like, in our old dogs, we can see them really slow to correct that or not correct it at all. Okay. And that's where vestibular disease comes in because we get this thing. We call it old dog vestibular disease. Just as they get older, that balance can start to go and they get this head tilt and then lose control of those reflexes in the lower legs. Got it. Well, see, and in horses, when I read this section, I was thinking in a way when we pick out their hooves, we're pinching areas on their lower legs um, and, and they react to that. So I think probably some of the uh, problems may be when they don't respond and they won't pick up a hoof no matter how mm -hmm. much you pinch. And um, I just wondered if anybody has correlated that with horses. I do know a lady that um, she couldn't get her mare for like a week to pick up a back hoof. And 
the following week, the horse was galloping and, and broke that back leg. So I often wonder if that wasn't a telltale sign, something wasn't right there. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you think these things, it, it might not mean anything, but I kept thinking, man, I wonder if that was correlated to the fact that there was a weakness there in that back hind limb. But anyway, yeah. I think that's I've actually funnily seen, um, I've seen some ponies that are just stubborn as anything out in the yards that we bring our students to, um, where there's horses for um, students to learn basic horse husbandry, handling and restraint. There are two um, ponies that, oh, they're just hilarious. Like they are cobs and they put so much weight. If the student is only learning how to pick up a hoof and once they get this massive shovel of a hoof lifted, immediately the pony just starts leaning in against them more and more. <laughs> and the students are just sweating, trying to hold that leg up. Like it's really awful. <laughs> But they're just so stubborn and they will not, they will not lift that leg, you know, and it's, they know too how, who's actually going to get their leg up or not. Yeah. So I always think of them with that because that's another example of a horse that may not react. Um, Because ponies, they can just be a little bit um, too smart for their own good sometimes, I think. Absolutely. I have found that out. But anyway, (laughs) I think that kind of wraps it up um one point they've got clinics care points at the end of this and uh, the first one is that ataxic horses can look remarkably better when excited it is worth giving the horse time after arrival to a clinic or a hospital um just give it time before examining it for mild neurological signs i thought that was a good point yeah. yeah. Um and I think of the other points we've probably covered most of them. Yeah, I th- think we've covered this paper pretty good. It was just so well written. Unfortunately, it's not open access, so it's one you do have to have a university sign in uh to be able to get, but um hopefully um there's uh, maybe ResearchGate might have it. Um, but anyway, I thought it was really, really good. Um, the one point I'm looking here in those uh, summaries that I never thought about blindfolding a horse um, because they can make that vestibular, um, that adjustment if they have a lesion. So um, they, you go ahead and blindfold them before walking them and that eliminates doing a head up or head down and they do have better balance when their head is down if there Mm -hmm. is a lesion going on so I thought that was a good idea I never thought to blindfold in a taxic course before because you know you're dealing with a lot in that situation but if you think it may be vestibular um, that's what this article, that was one of their recommendations. I think that's a, a great point because it's something you, you wouldn't think of, but if you mm-hmm. spun in circles and tried to walk afterwards as kids normally play these games, yeah. you try and focus on something. You try and get your eyes to focus to be yeah. able to walk. So 
if you imagine spinning in circles and then a blindfold on and you're told to walk, you're going to fall over. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that was one thing that was new to me. And I just enjoyed this paper. I think that's all the points I had. And uh, hopefully uh, no one has to use this information ever because neurological problems can be so, um, I don't know, they're just so serious. And mm -hmm. uh, hopefully you don't ever have to use this, but it's good knowledge to have just in case. Definitely. I loved, absolutely loved going through this paper. And I think we've identified lots of papers we now want to look at out of yeah. this. So it's yep. been really beneficial. Yep. Well, thanks, Kate. That's all I had for this week. And um, remember, send in your research. Uh, we did have a request on PPID, the uh, most current research. I know there's a lot of groups out there, but anyway, maybe after the new year, um, Yvetta um, had asked that we um, look at PPID. So maybe after the new year, we'll, we'll tackle that. We've got a few things uh, for the next few weeks to do. So, um, you know, anybody else has anything, let us know. Brilliant. And we'll talk to you again next week. Okay. Thanks, Kate. Bye-bye. Thanks, Nancy. Take care.